I'm Yvette Benavides, and this is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner on Book Public from Texas Public Radio. We're starting a limited series this week on the stories of Juan Rulfo. On this episode, we'll discuss You Don't Hear Dogs Barking. What eclipses the rereading of any work by Juan Rulfo is the irremediable problem of just how finite are his works. He published two books over a span of two years. He's well known for his seminal novel, Pedro Paramo, which was published in 1955. But perhaps just as important is his 1953 short story collection, El Llano en Llamas. At the time, readers in Mexico and throughout Latin America clamored for more, more books from Juan Rulfo, more of these stories distilled and minimal in narrative technique about rural people at the vexing intersections of human reality. Rulfo said often that his stories came from his Tio Celerino, an uncle who drank too much and went from town to town confirming children and bestowing God's blessings on them, even though he charged a fee for his services and was also a reputed atheist. But in storytelling, according to his nephew, he had no equal. Rulfo claims he ran out of stories to tell when this favorite uncle died. In his essay, On the Beauty of Not Writing, or An Unnecessary Homage to Juan Rulfo, Peter Orner writes that a writer's silence, or anybody's, should never be interrogated, only respected, and this from a distance. I've often thought that Peter Orner was a writer's writer, but also a writer for not just readers, but re-readers, those who can return to a work again and again, perhaps in the way that Gabriel Garcia Marquez did, claiming that he memorized every word of Rulfo's Pedro Paramo. Writes Orner, I've come to believe, as often as not, it's not the telling, it's the repeating that is at the core of storytelling. One day, while sitting at a picnic table in Pescadero, California, Peter Orner watched as a Russian family boisterously swapped stories, or seemed to from Orner's vantage point, the scene a strong counterpoint to the austere prose of Juan Rulfo. However, it also occurred to him that this would have been a context that Rulfo would have enjoyed, observing life as it happened around him and gleaning stories about people in all their wondrous complexity. In the story, No Oyes Ladrar a los Perros, or You Don't Hear Dogs Barking, we find a story perhaps as easy to reread and even commit to memory as a sonnet because it's distilled to the most essential dialogue and the thinnest exposition. We find a situation that is as wholly unlikely as it is perfectly believable. A father is carrying on his back his injured, grown son. They've walked for hours, and the father won't stop until they reach the next town, a place where they hope to find help for Ignacio. We enter the story in medias rest, thrust into an already critical life-and-death situation. What wouldn't a father do for his son in such dire straits? And then, how is he weighed down by the visceral tonnage of an array of emotions, especially, as we'll see, the amalgam of disappointment, frustration, fear, and anger that the father shoulders on the journey. 
There are some things we cannot change about ourselves or about each other. When this fact also means that there are things we cannot change about our children, the failures seem even more impossible to bear. And in the books left to us by Juan Rulfo, he reminds us of this fact that there is very little to say, but it must be said. Orner wonders if it's ever a good idea to channel a hero, to immerse ourselves in the rhythms and cadences and textures of a life in rural Mexico, to understand ourselves any place in the world, even on a picnic bench in Northern California. For Orner, the key to understanding Rulfo's universal appeal is not to focus on what Rulfo says in his stories, but instead to concentrate squarely on the silences. And what of Ignacio and his father? Our defeats are our stories, Peter Orner reminds us. Stories have got to be told. I say, tell them. Tell them sparingly if you can. But tell them. Here's our discussion of You Don't Hear Dogs Barking by Juan Rulfo. If somebody makes this kind of hyperbolic statement about a short story, we've, we've got to be able to say, what's so great about it, really? What is it? Somehow his stories are so perfect. So what, what is it, just in a general way, what is it for you before we take it apart? Well, here's what somebody else said about how great it is. This is uh, Raul Zarita, uh, a, a, a poet. Um, wonderful poet who edited, along with Forrest Gander, uh, a, a anthology called Pinholes in the Night, which is an uh, uh, essential poems from Latin America. And in this book of poems with uh, Cesar Vallejo and uh, Pablo Neruda, uh, Jaime Sabinas, the great Mexican poet, he includes um, this story. You don't hear dogs barking. Appears among the stories of the plain and flames. And again, that title, um, which is sometimes translated as The Burning Plain. He says, uh, the story is a masterpiece far beyond the compartmentalizing literary jockeying that makes its author, Juan Rufo, Mexico's matchless poet and one of contemporary literature's best. Um, and then he goes on to say something similar about, uh, about uh, you don't hear dogs barking, claiming it's a poem, a poem without redemption, its journey, the anticipa anticipation of a defeat as universal as it is intimate. Few images, and here we go. Here, talk about hyperbole, right? Few images in the history of art and literature, Sarita says, match that of the old man carrying his dying son on his shoulders through the night. What this parable of defeat shows us is that the history of language, those 150,000 years during which we've crisscrossed the earth exchanging grimaces, grunts, and words, is also a fable of misunderstanding. And then he quotes the story. And you didn't hear them, Ignacio. You didn't help me even with that hope. <laughs> you know, people take, this, people take this story to extremes and... Uh, and You know, and so, you know, we're not alone in this. And, and you know, and from, from my point of view, uh, and Zarita gets to it, it it's the, the, the basicness of it. You have an old man 
carrying his son, his injured son, he's been injured in some fight, seriously injured, and he's carrying him to another town across the desert for hours, hours. The story is what, five pages? Yes. If that, four and a half? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. No, not a whole lot of context. We know his son's kind of a bandit. He's a bad guy. Uh, and that's about it, right, in terms of, like, any any backstory, which we'll get to. Um, but I guess for me, it's it's just how truly elemental it is. And why does that make it a great story? It's hard to it's hard to say, and hopefully we'll we'll get to to why. But I I'll say one more thing. It's the physicality of it. Like literally, you read you read this story and you feel what it's like to be an old man with your grown son on your back. And I just as a tiny aside, this past weekend, I took my four year old on a like a like a four mile hike, right? And I had him in one of those, he's a little old for this, but, you know, I had him in the backpack. And I was exhausted after a mile. And he's four. And I was kept thinking about this story. I'm like, this is, right? And so, you know, in, in extreme conditions, human beings do extraordinary things. We know this strength-wise. But what this old man does in this story is, is you know, almost beyond physical belief for me. That is so powerful to think about, right? It's like um, when we talk about fathers and their sons, let's say, or of whatever discord and how it weighs physically, emotionally, sure, but how the burden also is so heavy, so palpably heavy, but not like this, you know, not like actually shouldering uh, a grown man and carrying him for hours. Yeah, it defies all believability. And yet, we there we are for paragraph after paragraph and page after page of it, feeling basically feeling the weight of it, I think. And it's not fantastical, right? I mean, it, it, I mean Rufo knows that if the story is going to um, resonate, if the story's going to work at all, then we've got to believe it. And I think, I mean, there's a, there's so many places that I could point to, but the one that I think of is when, you know, he, 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 he the, the son keeps wanting him to put him down, right? And, uh, and he, he, uh, this is on page two, the old man backed up to a thick wall, and bent over without letting his load down from his shoulders. Though his legs were buckling, he didn't want to sit, because then he wouldn't have been able to lift his son's body again. They had helped him put him on his back a while ago, hours before, and he'd been carrying him all the way since then. So he, 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 backs, him, he, he backs up to a rock wall to rest a little, but he doesn't put him down. We all know what that's like, right? You put something down, it's over. So Rufo knows that if the old man puts the kid down, the kid, and he's not a kid, he's a grown man, puts a man down, and there's a moment where he actually calls him a man, one moment towards the end, which just slays me. <laughs> Suddenly, he goes from being Ignacio to the man. 
but but Rufo knows that it, this is all about the physicality of it. And, you know, for a story, again, that's so tiny to have this kind of power, um, I think it comes from, from moments like that when he decides, you know, he can rest a tiny, tiny bit here, but he can't possibly, possibly let him down or else he'll never get him back up on his back and shoulders again. And that'll be it. Right. He had help. Somebody helped him. Right. And And another story writer would be like telling that story of who helped him. (laughs) You know, they helped. That's all we get. Yeah. They. They. Who's they? When? What happened? What did Ignacio do? No idea. Except he was doing something bad with his friends who apparently are all dead. Can't you just see the marginalia from a creative writing instructor? Who is they? (laughs) (laughs) And just ruining everything. (laughs) Right. That's why you you can't mess with this stuff. And, 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 you know, I could be sitting in a class and do that very same thing. You know what I mean? And so you got to be careful when when you're faced with a piece of art. Yeah. He is bound and determined himself to get to Tonaya. And, I mean, there there does seem to be an ulterior motive beyond the idea of getting help for him. It is sort of like... I am your father. I promised your mother. I'm going to do this. I mean, it's 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 such a complicated journey for that reason too. It's like yes, he has to get help for his son in the next town, but there's a little bit more riding on it for the father. Wow, Yvette, Yvette you're really getting. I mean, you're like, I mean, because the story, like people might listen and say, oh, "What a beautiful, <laughs> what a beautiful story." It's about a father you know, rescuing his son and carrying him across the desert to the next town to see a doctor. How, what a, you know what I mean? Let's start the violins going, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, <laughs> I mean, Rofo's not interested, even though that is, I mean, love for a son is certainly there. It's there, but it's not, it's not going to be, um, <laughs> it's not going to be handed to us like that. No, right? no. And so it's, it's even more burdensome. Yeah, because he berates him. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, but before we get there, because it's like, it's almost like one of these stories that I wanted to last longer. Mm-hmm. But it's, I read it and it's over. I know. It's over. But I want to talk about the beginning. Okay. I want to talk about how it starts. Because it's, you know, and, and, and people who are familiar with the plane in flames or the burning plane know that, you know, that you're getting these compressed you know, stories that, you know, I think you could say, you know, start in motion, start in media race, right? They start, they just, mm-hmm. they are just there. And the, the first few lines of this story are um, extraordinary, and they go like this. You up there, Ignacio, tell me if you hear some sign or see some light somewhere. I don't see anything. We must be close. Yes, but I can't hear a thing. Look hard. I don't see anything. So much the worse for you, Ignacio. So there's all of the dialogue. That's how it begins. You know, before we have any kind of any notion of what's going on, but tell me, Ignacio, what do you see up there? So you get a notion of maybe what somebody might be must be carrying someone, maybe. Mm-hmm. But I suppose he, Ignacio, could be at the top of a tower, and the guy, you know, guy could be down below. What do you see up there, right? So we still don't know. 
and then there's this. The men's long, dark shadow continued moving up and down, climbing over the rocks, getting smaller and larger as it went along the edge of the arroyo. It was a single shadow reeling. That's the first punch in the stomach is the single shadow. Yeah, yeah. And I would also say just that word continued. The long men's, the men's long, dark shadow continued. So we are in motion, and we have been out in this desert for hours before the story comes into play. You know, and, and just think about the choice there of what Rufo, you know, instead of, there's a whole story. You could tell a novel about Ignacio and how he turned bad and his father apparently, you know, rescuing him after he's been beaten up or shot or whatever he's been. Right, mm-hmm. um, but Rufo picks it up long into the journey to 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 the town or the village, depending on the translation. But if you you know back to this idea of starting the story with dialogue and not providing any context there to again, you know the 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 writing instructor's red pen immediately goes there. Where are we? You know. And um, thank God <laughs> that didn't happen uh, to Rulfo. But yeah, it's um, the. And also, I want to point to this. Tell me if you hear some sign or see some light. That's in, that's in the first sentence, and the response is, "I don't see anything. I can't hear a thing. I don't see anything." I mean, it's like from the beginning. The the son's response is zero. Yeah, because at this point he's been up there. He's injured. He's riding. You know, there's a description of his uh, hands pressing into his father's head to hold uh, on. Mm-hmm. You know, and and he you know he's 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 fading. He's dying. He's injured. Mm-hmm. And and. So, of course, he's not going to be, he's not, it's long past the point of Ignacio looking around. And it, it, it starts there, as opposed to, as to, as opposed to emerges there. So, you know, you said before we started the call today, like, what an un, unremittingly mm-hmm. sad story this is. I mean, it is. It's devastating. And it starts that way. It, it doesn't even, it doesn't evolve necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gets worse. But it starts, and we're in really bad shape. We got an old man who can barely make it, and we got a, a son who's dying on his back. Yeah, and he says, "How do you feel? Bad, bad." So, um, and and his insistence of "Put me down, leave me here, you go on," and um, and the father says, "No." And the father is is walking blind at this point. Um, he can't really see what's up ahead. No. And so it's, I mean, I don't know if I want to go there to this idea of an implicit trust that he feels. It's, I don't think it's that. I think that's almost too poetic. I, th- I think it's, it's just this is what a father has to do. Keep going. Yeah, and I, I, 
I would I would push back a little. I think implicit trust is really what you know is happening in spite of all the bad blood between them, which we which doesn't really emerge until later in the story, but it's certainly present all along. And yet, you know, they're father and son. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, he can't see. He's sort of staggering through the desert. And you, 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 you mentioned the line of dialogue, how do you feel? Bad. <laughs> Which is just so brilliant that he would <laughs> do that so starkly. But the next paragraph to me is, yeah, is, is just astounding. He said little, less and less. At times he looked asleep. At times he looked to be cold. Now you just said that the father was blind. And even if he wasn't blind, he wouldn't be able to see how his son looks. Uh, and I find the narration just fascinating here. At times he looked asleep. At times he looked to be cold. He trembled. And then he knew when the tremors were taking over his son because of his shaking and because his feet would dig into his father's flanks like spurs. So there is the feeling where that, that the father could experience because he's, he, can feel the sh- he can feel his son shake mm-hmm. and he can feel his son's feet digging into his flanks like spurs. But it's this, I, I find it so almost heartbreakingly beautiful that that there that the narrator here kind of enters the story very subtly at times he looked asleep at times he looked to be cold i think a translator must be having a nightmare here to figure out how to how to handle this mm-hmm. and i actually looked at the spanish it does seem that that is what is happening mm-hmm. that the that the narrator is sort of breaking in slightly there but it's so delicate and you know, people might not necessarily even notice it. I certainly didn't the first, you know, 20 times I read this story. But there's a narrator here. Yeah. So because as the son has the opportunity, but not the strength, not the physical strength, to look out toward the horizon, toward what's in front of him, the father can really only look down probably um, and it's it's like we understand that the son feels bad and is in a lot of pain, probably. But the father, I feel like in in those moments where the son hangs on all the more to his head or or digs um, his feet into his father's flanks like spurs, I think he makes the the journey even harder for the father as they go. So the, you know the father. The father's looking down, or really can't see too far ahead, and all they have is the moon to light the way. It's made much worse as we go for the father. Certainly, the son is dying, of course, but it's it feels like through some osmotic <laughs> process, the the father is feeling worse as as they go through the journey. Yeah, and again, it comes down to the physicality of the story. Naturally, I mean, he just he's he can't move forward as as well as he could earlier on in this journey, and that's where Rufo picks them up at the moment where they're barely making it, but they are making it, which is why the story isn't as bleak as it might seem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not that it has a happy ending; far from it. But they do reach the village, mm-hmm. and and that's an incredible endurance 
test that this father experiences. But as you say, that the son isn't making it easier, but that's because he's just trying to hang on. <laughs> he's trying to hang on. But I mean, like, imagine like if you were on, if you were the son mm-hmm. and you really didn't want to be, you didn't want this to go on anymore. Couldn't you, couldn't you fall off? I mean, couldn't you just enough? Let go. Mm-hmm. Let go. Right? If somebody, if you, if you don't want to be carried, unless you're unconscious, you, 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 you can prevent being carried. You could kick, you could kick them in the head, right? You could do a lot of things, even if you're barely alive. So it seems like you're exactly what you said. It's like the son isn't making it easier, but he's also like still, you know, part of him is still hanging on. Yeah, because he could just slide off. The father's not holding him there. He's holding his father's head, and he's holding on with his feet. It seems desperate. I mean, it seems like he is desperately holding on, even as much for as much as he says, put me down. And then he says it again, put me down, Father. Do you feel bad? Yes. I'll get you to Donaya no matter what. I've carried you for hours and won't drop you here so whoever is after you can finish you off. And, and as, he, as the story moves on, a strange thing happens. And, and I, I, I can understand this in a physical level, too. And, and there's so much to talk about in the story, just to context and why, you know, why these, why these stories sort of, you know, with the Mexican literary world on fire and all of that. But, but, but staying inside the story, which is where we belong, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it seems what's extraordinary that, that starts to happen is the father becomes more loquacious as the story moves on. He wants to talk more. He has the strength not only to stagger across the desert because basically he, thinks the town must be in sight. I mean, it must, must be just around the next, you know, up and over the next hill. Uh, he starts talking a lot more. He starts, he starts telling the son things that aren't helpful, you know, <laughs> which make the story so brilliant for me. And what is that about, do you think? I mean, I think there's where the, the story is. There's the physicality of a father carrying his son on his back and shoulders across the desert. But it's also that, and I've been thinking a lot about this, he's got a captive audience. This son has been abandoned, a near-do-well, a, you know, a robber, whatever he's been up to. He's been up to a lot of, of stuff. And, and, and this gets to the context of like what's going on in Mexico and at this time, and there's a lot of upheaval, right? Mm-hmm. And and, and and this kid is, you know, who knows what he's caught up in, but he's, you know, he's, he's, he's doing things that his parents obviously disapprove of, including robbing, like, his godfather, apparently. Uh, he's a bad guy. And, and, and the father takes this opportunity while he is saving his life, or at least desperately, desperately trying to save his life, he takes the opportunity to tell the son what he thinks of him. And that is, you know, a long paragraph of dialogue in a story that didn't have that kind of, um, you know, that kind of conversation before. It is an opportunity for him not to settle any kind of score, but to say the things maybe he's always wanted to say to him. Everything I'm doing, I'm not doing for you, I'm doing it for your late mother, right? It's like, 
now's his chance. You're right. It's his captive audience. You're right. It's like now is his chance to say these things. These are not the things we say to our children just as a matter of routine. And he never, he hasn't had the chance. His son probably hasn't given him any chance. You know, when you're when you're when you're robbing people, it's not like you want to like hear about how bad how bad you are from your dad, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, probably Ignacio has had nothing to do with his father. Again, we have no idea because because Rufo gives us none of that backstory. But I I can. I can say with great assurance that these guys have not talked in a while, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then there's that paragraph that you point to. Everything I'm doing, I'm not doing for you. Don't get all, you know, readers. Don't get sentimental here, right? Mm-hmm. Even though I think there is amount of sentimentality in this story, and not of a, of a cheap kind, you know. But actually, I mean, there's a great deal of, you know, the endurance of love in this story for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he lets him have it. She would reproach me if I'd left you lying there where I found you and had not picked you up and carried you to where they can take care of you like I'm doing. It's she who gives me courage, not you, starting with the fact that I owe you nothing but difficulty, nothing but humiliation, nothing but shame. He owes the kid humiliation. That's pretty awesome. Hmm. I haven't seen that before. I, I owe you humiliation. <laughs> you know? And again, I thank the translator for that one. Mm-hmm. But I think it's there in the original. But then the very next thing is, I'll break my back, <laughs> but I'll go to Tonaya with you. Except, except what's between that. He's there's, so... this, there's this description, which is so, like, can I read it? Yes. I, yes. <laughs> and I don't mean to <laughs> sweat as he spoke. But the night wind dried the sweat, and so he, and he sweated again over the dried sweat. <laughs> That's what comes in the middle. He, he, Rufo never forgets the physicality of this, and even if it's just a tiny line. But the, how many times I've never read a line where it talks about dried sweat, you know, new sweat drying over the previously dried sweat. Have you? No. And <laughs> it how many times have you experienced that? Yes. But it is, I do, and I do, and I do for you, and I get no thanks. And so then that dries up, and then there's more, <laughs> right? It's like, right. it's right. just like endlessly giving over to the sun. And then this is probably the longest paragraph in the story. Yep. Do you want to read that? Uh, why don't you read that? I'll break my back, but I'll get to Tonaya with you, so the injuries they've inflicted on you can be healed. Although I'm sure that... Once you're well, you'll return to your evil ways. That doesn't matter to me anymore. As long as you go far away where I no longer hear anything about you. As long as that happens, because to me, you're no longer my son. I've cursed the blood you have from me. The part you got from me, I've cursed. I've said, let the blood I gave him rot in his kidneys. I said it from the moment I knew you had taken to the road, robbing to make a living and killing people and good people. And not only that, there's my compadre Tranquilino, the man who baptized you, who gave you your name. He had the ill luck to run into you too. From that time on, I said, this can't be my son. 
You know, it's like a total destruction of this guy. Not you're, not only are you a, a horrible, horrible guy, but you've also, you know, look what you did to to, to my compadre uh, Tranquilino, which translates as what? Tranquil? Yeah. Completely the worst of the worst, right? So there's no redemption for this guy, except, and and you know, Again, I guess all bets are off in terms of the anti-hyperbole rule, which <laughs> I swear will come back after this episode. But to me, and, and this is just something that kind of came to me recently, but the move that Rufo makes in the next paragraph from this one is just like, I, I, I don't know what the right metaphor would be. Like, you know, kind of you're on a trapeze artist and you're the, the most difficult artistic maneuver imagine that i think is what happens here on the next that the from that paragraph that you just read the complete indictment to this look and see if you can see anything or if you hear anything you can do it from up there because i'm feeling death suddenly there you know he goes from that complete indictment to what do you see Mm-hmm. It gets a totally different register, almost a different voice, almost a different relationship, right? Mm-hmm. And it it, it 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 just it slaughters me. Mm-hmm. Without introduction, without without the kind of uh, 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 you know no 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 contextual like you know he adjusted his shoulder or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's a new paragraph with a new line of dialogue that comes from the same character, mm-hmm. which you mentioned, you know creative writing teachers, of which sometimes I sadly am, would say like, well, I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know who's speaking here. <laughs> I, I, it's the same character? How, why don't you have some distinguishing thing to make us clear that the same character is speaking twice? It is the same character, but it's a different character in a way. It's a different father who asks him, hey, what do you see now? You're the worst person ever, 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 ever. What do you see now? <laughs> And it's so subtle. Rufo is the least show-offy writer. He's the least show-offy great writer you can find. And, and, and that maneuver right there is, you know, you could, you could go a long time without seeing something quite like that where you, you know, what would it have taken for him to have something in the middle of that to say, like, and then something else? You know what I mean? Something made him, you know, he stumbled. And then he said, what do you see? You know what I mean? There, mm-hmm. it, it just took incredible discipline to not kind of, fill in that space. And I checked the Spanish, and the, the dialogue follows right on each other, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the one line of dialogue, the, the big chunk of dialogue, and then the tiny one. The very next beat is, for yeah. me, pretty devastating, because then he says, I'm thirsty. And I, I, I remember reading that recently, you know, after not having read the story in such a long time. And having this heart-sinking feeling of, oh no, you know, it's it's like, it's it's everything else. The father's carrying him. It's this, you know, this indictment. And what else can, what else heartbreaking can happen? Mm-hmm. And it's it's this. I'm thirsty. Yeah. And the father says, "Live with it. <laughs> Live with it." We must be close. It's already very late. They must have turned the lights off in the village. 
but at least you should hear if the dogs are barking. Try to hear. And the son's like, I'm done with this. I'm done with this, Dad. <laughs> Give me water. There's no water. There's nothing but rocks. But he's still going. He's still going. And then there's the next long paragraph. Yeah. Like, why does the father keep giving these speeches? And I think one is one way of seeing it is, like we talked about, that, that he has a chance to be alone with his kid for the first time in a long time, so he's taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is I think it's actually giving him strength mm. to, to speak like this. Because I was thinking, oh, it must just totally wipe him out to have to open his mouth and talk and say anything. And, it, and so... The opposite is what you're offering. I think that's powerful. I mean, I, I, I mean, I think it's possible that, mm-hmm. that you know you reach a certain point where you know you have to give yourself the, the anger, almost the rage, kind of keeps him going. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't know how physically he's able to do this at all. Period. Mm-hmm. So you know. Maybe he is making, I mean, obviously, if he's talking, he's taking energy. It's, taking, it's making it harder for sure. But I, I remember when you were born. That's how you were then. You would wake up hungry and would eat before you went back to sleep, and your mother would give you water because you had already gone through her milk. You wouldn't be full, and you'd get mad. I, I never thought that as time went by that madness would go to your head, but that's what happened. Your mother, may she rest in peace, wanted you to grow up strong. She thought that when you'd grow up, you would look after her. You were all she had. The other child she was going to have killed her. And you would have killed her again if she were alive at this point. <laughs> so, you know, again, it's like, I mean, you know, you just wanted to, like, say, like, can you just give the kid a break so you can get to the hospital? <laughs> but no. And then the next line, there's that reference to the man. He felt the man. Yeah. Which, you know, I mean, of, of all, I mean you could go through and almost every paragraph could be, <laughs> could be like, oh, my God, it's the greatest thing ever. But this, <laughs> this, yeah. he felt the man he was carrying on his shoulder stop pressing inward with his knees and let his feet go. They were swinging from one side to the other, and he felt the head up above shake as if it were sobbing. So he got to him. He got to him. It's beyond the pain, the physical pain. He actually got to the kid. The speech has worked, in a a sense. He got to him. He got to the kid emotionally, the son. We're in the desert, and we're struggling to just make it. All we want to do is make it, but they've got bigger, almost bigger things to deal with than the the survival of the moment, in a sense. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, I don't think it's a totally bleak story. I think it's a story about a connection. He makes the connection. He tells you, he tells the kid, look what you, look what you have done. Now do you get it? That's better than him having died without that. I'm not saying it's happy. <laughs> it's not. But it does seem, <laughs> he couldn't have made the connection otherwise, except in a moment like that. No. Do you think? Mm-mm. Come on, son. Let's go have a beer and talk about how horrible you you how, how horrible you've been and what you've done to your mother's memory, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, here they it's it's <laughs> this is the ultimate father son conversation. You know, while at the same time he's saving his life or trying to desperately desperately trying to save his life. 
if he truly felt the way he's talking about, he'd drop the kid in the desert. So it can be both, you know. I don't think the rage is hate. I think the rage is love. Mm-hmm. In a sense, I think the silence honors a story, you know. I always feel like, oh, my God, we're on the radio. We have to talk, <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> like, I think Wufo would be like, all right, shut up already. Just let the story be, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and But there's more. It's not over. It's not over. It's not even over. Are you crying, Ignacio? The memory of your mother is making you cry, right? But you never did anything for her. You always repaid us badly. Like, he's still going. It seems as if instead of affection, we had filled your body with malice. And now you see, they've wounded you. What happened to your friends? Did they kill them all? But they had no one. And that's, I mean, again, like, he's not... He doesn't blare the horn when he's making his enormous fictional points, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's what I learned from Morpho is, you know, you blow the horn, and almost like what we're doing now is like by, it's like anti-fiction. You know what I mean? By sort of pointing out stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, because buried in that paragraph is, but they had no one. But they had no one. You got me. I picked you up, and I'm taking you to this next town. <laughs> you know, and you wonder, like, why wasn't there, wasn't there a doctor in the town he got injured in or beat up in? Why does he have to go to this other town? Well, you know, because maybe nobody would have helped him in that town because they all know what a jerk he is. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, because, I mean, at a certain point, Rufo isn't, isn't real. You know, there's a, there's a certain point where it becomes mythical, you know. So we have no one to give our sorrows to, the friends would say. But you, Ignacio? Yeah. So that's the second to the last thing he says. Yeah. And, you know, and and Rufo shifts to the... And we're going to talk more about him. uh, Is is what, what, what is so... What I, what I think about with him is how he's able to give me the visual picture in my head with, with so few words. So few words. I'm seeing the vastness of this desert. I'm seeing how difficult this is. I'm seeing the rock that he rested against, you know, in that one moment where he wouldn't put his kid down because if he had, he wouldn't have been able to pick him up again. And then at the very end of the story, he gives us this sort of, you know, this... Um, description at last the village was there he saw the roofs shining under the moonlight i think we should say it's it's dark it's gotten dark at this point mm-hmm. it's been dark actually i think the whole time sometimes i visualize the story in daylight but it's not daylight right right i know sometimes i i do too like with the sun beating down on them <laughs> yeah yeah as if it wasn't bad enough mm-hmm. you know there's moon on the first page. Yeah. So, with difficulty, he unclenched the fingers with which his son had been clinging to his neck. Yeah. And once free, he heard the dogs barking everywhere. And what about the last line, Peter? It just that, that unclenched the fingers. And, and, you know, we haven't talked about the for a long time, for many years, there was only one English translation, and it wasn't this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, a, a different translation. This, the title of this book is uh, 
the plain in flames, and the title of the old translation is The Burning Plain. And in that, I don't have it uh, opened but in front of me, but the translator chooses a different word, not unclenched. He says unpried, which is interesting. Um, but the, I mean, the point is he, you know, and you know, how, how do you, how do you read that? You know, if you have to unclench someone's fingers, that's not a good sign, right? Mm-hmm. With which his son had been clinging, but he doesn't tell us that the son has died. And I don't know if the son has or not, but I know things aren't good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think if you have to unclench somebody's fingers, I think that that's, I would err on the side of if not having made it. Um, and then the last line, and you didn't hear them, Ignacio, he said, you didn't help me even with that hope. Like, what's he talking about? Hear who? Hear what? What are your thoughts about that last line? Well, the ambiguity of is he dead, is he not dead, even though his body has is limp, as if its yeah. joints had been removed. I feel like the the last line of dialogue is sort of saying it's it seems so final. And you can either take it as like he's continuing with one of these diatribes where he's just ranting at the at the sun, um, or he says you and you didn't hear them. So um, the idea of you didn't hear them because you couldn't because you you really couldn't hear them, right? He was dead, and you didn't even give me sort of that last bit of of esperanza of of hope. So I feel like. It's it's really about you. I always think about it in terms of you. Not that he didn't hear a word he said this whole time, but that he did hear him, and it's too late. I think that too. I I, I think you know. I, I mean, this, so the story's bleak. It's despairing. Um, but again, I I come back to the fact that maybe it was a one-sided conversation, but it was certainly certainly a conversation mm-hmm. that and and but it's you know but Rufo is not screwing around he's not going to give anybody uh false hopes but what he does do is show what these characters are capable of not just physically but you know psychologically to, to be able to have done this to be able to have endured that and I, I don't think that that is, um, you know, I think that's huge, you know, and I, I, I think it's, I don't know, maybe this word's are sort of overused with Rufo, I've seen, but, you know, the, the dignity that he endows his characters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'd say right here is there's incredible dignity for this man, dignity and honor, and also, you know, uh, cruelty. There's no question about it. But but he's, he's you know, he's, he's diatribing, against his kid, his son, while at the same time struggling across the sand. It's just a story to reread, you know. Uh, so I'm thinking about it in terms of when people ask, when my students ask me if all, if is everything we read going to be sad? Is everything we, does everything we read have to be sad? And that's missing a much finer point. You know, I think sometimes they want to brace themselves against 
a moral or a takeaway or a, you know, this kind of, what did you learn from the story that, how did the character change for the better? Well, in short stories as in life, <laughs> sometimes it's not about a, a takeaway. It's not about a tidy ending um, and the, the character learns something and moves forward. You know, it's just not, it's not going to be that way. And I feel like it's not just bleak for this, for, you know, this emo thing, you know, it's not bleak just for the sake of being sad. It's very real in this way that I feel like there's like, if we're going to learn something, and I'm thinking about an interview that I, that, uh, that you gave, um, I saw, I watched the video of it where you said to somebody, I can't remember who it was, I don't want to, you know, uh, uh, f to figure out the meaning. That's not the idea when we read short stories. It's, it's what does it make you feel, right? How did it restart your heart? You know, this sort of thing. And with this story, I feel like it's something to do with relationships, maybe the maybe the familial ones or the the parent child ones, around burdens that physical weight that we were talking about before that cannot be changed. I'm thinking also of another uh, oh. the the Richard Bausch um, essay that you wrote uh, about that story the about the little granddaughter who's jumping rope in the rain. You know, there are some things about our children that we cannot change. And when we don't accept that, there are things about our children that we cannot change, no matter what we say or do or think or feel. And that's, that's a very powerful human thing that I think is very hard for parents to say out loud. Like if, if there's a way of talking about why this story is so great, you just did it. You know what I mean? I mean, there it is. It's you know, this idea of parents not being able to, you know, we can't determine everything that happens and we can't change stuff. And, and, and so then what? Then what? And, and, you know, maybe this is an extreme example of what parents have to do or do do. But, you know, maybe we, the world needs, and I think, you know, the idea is that, that you know, that this is, this is one of the supreme examples of what parents have to do. Juan Rulfo is the author of No Oyes Ladrar a los Perros from El Llano en Llamas. We've discussed here You Don't Hear the Dogs Barking, the translation by Elan Stavans and Harold Augengram from the book The Plain in Flames, published by the University of Texas Press. The story, No Dogs Bark, appears in The Burning Plain and Other Stories, translated by George Shade and published by the University of Texas Press. The essays referenced here by Peter Orner come from the book Am I Alone Here, published by Catapult. He's also the author of five other books, including Maggie Brown and Others, published by Little Brown and Company. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 